I'm Brendan Schuchart, and welcome to the Nova Summit. Today on the program, I'm joined by artist, DJ, and performer, Nathan Report. Nathan is here to talk about his adult coloring book, Last Night I Dreamt That Somebody Loved Me, which is, to me, a heart-achingly beautiful meditation on the way in which gay boys throw ourselves into the moth hedonism as a way of managing a kind of fundamental loneliness that comes with being queer. Nathan and I were in the same class of Queens back in San Francisco, and there is a way in which this book, much like Brontes Purnell's Johnny Would You Love Me If My Dick Were Bigger, feels both universal to gay guys of a certain generation, yet seems inoxorably tied to a certain point of view that only seems to come with having lived in the Bay Area during the latter half of the 2000s. But that's enough editorializing. Without further ado, here's Nathan Report. Call is now being recorded. Hello, Nathan. Hey, how are you? Hey, buddy. What's going on? How's your day going? It's good. No worries. No pressure. It's, uh, it's very mellow. It's very, like, I'm just kind of catching up on some stuff. and finally, finally, finally catching up on mail-outs, which is great. So I get my life back a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, let's jump into it. Cool. Okay. So um, I'm on the line with Nathan Rapport, the creator of the beautiful and brilliant and kind of sad adult coloring book <laughs> titled Last Night I Dreamt That Somebody Loved Me. Uh, Nathan, um, how did this come to be? Yeah, um, it came to be because I just sort of felt the need to make a piece of art at the time. Um, I was having a summer where there was just a lot happening in my life. I was uh, you know, in the process of trying to sell a house. I was in the process of deciding whether I was going to stay in Austin or go back to San Francisco or go somewhere completely different. Um, I was in the process of a really hard breakup. Um, it was just a lot of change happening at once. It's a very strangely chaotic summer, uh, and I just kind of needed to process some stuff. And so I had a really good friend who was kind of going through a similar experience in his life, and we both just decided to work on some art together. And it was really simple and really pure, and we just we had a deadline because our friend who throws a festival called Stargazer here in Austin gave us a, an opportunity to, to vent at the festival, which was great. Um, and Dustin worked on these valentines, these sort of hand-cut uh, paper valentines, as well as these collage pieces, and I worked on this coloring book. And uh, I started out with a single drawing, and then I just kind of, the second it snapped, that's what I wanted to do, and then I wanted to, to visit that world a little bit. Um, I knew that I wanted to make a coloring book, so it was a process of just kind of digging through a lot of music and, you know, sifting through my old favorites and uh, putting something together, and it took about a month altogether of working on it. Yeah. And um, for those listening along at home who have not yet seen this coloring book, they really should. It's got, um, <laughs> like, each page is a, a drawing of men of, like, a, a wide swath of body types and seeming appearances. I mean, they're drawing. But um, they are, <laughs> they are um, like, beautifully done. And um, they a lot of them um, depict like group sex and the way in which they're paired with these lyrics from classic songs of uh of, of heartbreak there's one that like jumps out at me that i keep coming back to there's it's got six guys and it's towards the middle of the book and the guy uh, what they're they're um lined up five in a row as one guy stands over them and the guy in the middle on the bottom is sucking the guy on the top's dick and it's paired with the lyrics, boys on the left side, boys on the right side. 
boys in the middle and you're not here. And I seriously almost cried when I read that. Like, um, (laughs) I have, I have been in that exact situation and those exact song lyrics have ran through my head. Uh And, like you blew my mind a little bit, man. Like uh, awesome. you, I was not expecting this coloring book to like moisten my face. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> I guess first of all, like where did you get these images? Did you? I mean, are these recreated from memory? Were you using photographs? No, not at all. They, it's all actually sourced from pretty pretty much mostly vintage porn magazines that I bought for like a dollar a pop at the local porn store. Okay. Um, I just kind of, I knew exactly the imagery that I was looking for, and I just went through and just kind of really spent, you know, throughout that course of that month, I mean, I think I flipped through the same 15, 20 magazines a good, you know, 15 times each, probably at least, bookmarking things and kind of going back to them and figuring it out. And it was also a system of, you know, not only coming up with the right imagery, but coming up with the right imagery for the lyrics. And I was doing both simultaneously. Like, I was just kind of cranking out imagery that I knew appealed to me for the project, while finding lyrics, and I was kind of pairing as I went, and definitely there were moments where I switched things up, and like one lyric was paired with something, and I was like, that's just not right, I had to go with something else. Why did you choose these lyrics? Each page is, as far as I can tell, a different artist and a different song. Yeah. Um, two, actually, I realized after the fact, two ended up being the same writer, which was Prince for both uh, ah. Nothing Compares to You as well as Purple Rain. But different artists were the inspirations, for sure. If you're going to double up on an artist, you could do worse than Prince. Right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do it intentionally. It was obviously those two songs, and it was it was the Sinead version, definitely, that, you know, has always killed my soul more than the other, even though the other is amazing. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I managed a record store for my whole life. I'm a music guy. Music's everything to me. I was a DJ for many years. You know, it was... I felt like it was kind of like being DJ again, to be honest. It was creating a... You know what it really felt like more than that even is was making a mixtape. Um mm. back in the day. Yes, when I was we're gonna say it feels tape. very much like a mixtape. Like yes, absolutely. I, I, I kinda wanna piece it together actually. Absolutely. And uh you know it's funny actually, kinda of sidetrack. I, I was just my friend was a friend requested by this kid on Facebook two days ago and I accepted it and as I looked at his profile I realized that his timeline photo was one of the book images from my book and I just scrolled down. He had posted a Spotify playlist that he made that was every song from the book in page order <laughs> as a playlist. And I was like, oh, my God, this, like, 23-year-old kid is blowing my mind right now. This is amazing. <laughs> and, of course, he couldn't put Purple Rain in there because Prince doesn't allow any of that shit. But, like, yeah, he, he had every other song right in a page order and track order. And it was like, wow, yes, you got it. Awesome. So, yeah, it does. It feels like a mixtape. Like, when I DJ, you know, I feel like there's there's got to be sort of an organic process to it where, like, I would always bring more records than I needed knowing that, like, mm-hmm. I was going to be doing a lot of just on-the-fly figuring it out. That's always how I like to play. Um, and it's the same with this. I just kind of, I, I found more source material than I needed, and I just made crazy person lists and listened to a lot of music and spent a lot of time alone with headphones on just kind of going up with it. But then there were moments, too, where, like, I would just be listening to something for the sake of listening to it, and a lyric would pop out to you, and this was that perfect example. I was just having an old extra clean, like, lip sync moment in my car to call the white sneeze, and, like, that shit came on. And I was like, oh, my God, how did I not even think about this lyric to this book? And it was the next drawing I did. It was like I went right to the paper and just, like, did that one. It was like, got it. You know, and that was such a perfect image for that. And it's the only one where the text wraps, too, which is interesting. Everything else, kind of the text lives as text, and that one, it wraps right. on the image. felt, you know, I tossed around. I tossed on the idea of changing the text on that and kind of making it more like the others. And I just, I don't know, it's something about it. It was just perfect. Like it was a symmetrical image. The um, it's funny because the other image that I feel 
like the words are like integrated into the image, even though they're shooting is the very next image. It's mm-hmm. uh um where this boy is sucking dick as he's getting fucked from behind and there's a disco ball over them and the the the, the words radiating from the disco ball are and you fuck like a volcano and you're everything to me. Mm-hmm. Um a little is fair. Those words feel like they are coming out of that disco ball. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I've, I've also had that moment. Yeah. The, the music for sure. itself is like has become light and is shimmering out of this ball as I'm getting down. Uh-huh. Um, you and I know each other from San Francisco. We are both, yes. I think, roughly of like the same quote unquote class of San mm-hmm. Francisco's queer scene. And to me, this feels quintessentially of that time, I mean, I related to it instantly. I know it's a coloring book, but I don't think I've picked up a book recently that has had like a more immediate visceral coming home feeling than this book. That was a very unique time and place, I think, where we got to be guys oh, in our 100%. early, All mid to late twenties. <laughs> there was a that was a, an amazingly hedonistic and creative and loving environment. I mean, I think, and I think we all know that. And I think we all look back at that time. And most of us have moved on to other places, or a lot of us have at least. Right. I think we're all, yeah. We look back at that and we all go, we were really, this was special and this was really unique and we were very lucky. I felt it then, but I didn't realize how, I, it felt special, but I didn't realize how unique it was until I left. You know? Absolutely. Um, totally. I didn't realize that other, like, queer families weren't as, brawling or as supportive or as uh, yeah. um, and you and I weren't even close like we were always in the same pool but you were on, always on the other other end for me in fact I've always been a little fascinated by you honestly you guys you always had it you always you, you always seem to be leaving just as I was arriving or arriving just as I was leaving and yeah yeah and you always you always I always there was an air of mystery about you that I always it was always intrigued by. It was not intentional, I promise. Um, you know, I think that's what part, was, was part of what was so special and unique about San Francisco is, though, is that we had a big enough pool of family that even though we were definitely part of the same family, we didn't ever have the chance to really get intimate because there was just so much and, like, everybody was doing their own things. But I also knew, I mean, you and I at the same time have worked on projects together, you know, like, I've done Berenstein yeah. stuff. Like, we definitely... I've painted you, you know, like it's funny. Yes, like, yes, you have. <laughs> so, I mean. And now we're at the time looking more like a mermaid. I know. I know. <laughs> Even, apparently, Stephen was really mad about the butt in that photo, his butt, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. Oh I thought he was great. <laughs> we all look amazing. None of us have ever looked as good as we look in that drug. We didn't even have to complain. Yeah, Ambrosia's waist is like my pinky size. Like, it's ridiculous. I know. Yeah. <laughs> she looks like She-Ra. She's amazing in that picture. For those of you listening um, at home, yeah. I, will, we, I will include I, that image yeah. on the website. Yeah, it's pretty, it was pretty special. It was a good one. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I think that was, yeah, it was a very special time, a very special place, and it's part of what I've struggled with being in Austin is, is find, finding anything reminiscent, reminiscent of that again, and it, it isn't really here for me. Um, and that's okay. And, I, you know, I think... We change and we get older, and I certainly don't need the nightclub aspect of that community as much as I did anymore. I do wish that I had more intimate friendships 
in the sense of, you know, in San Francisco, we lived our lives. If you had an intimate friend in San Francisco, if you had a circle of them, you lived your lives side by side. Like, you went through the shit the shit and the great stuff yeah. together. You were hanging out almost every day. When you said goodbye, it wasn't like, I'll see you for another catch-up dinner in three weeks. It was like, see you tomorrow, gal. Like, you know, and we all had those, and that's very different here. And I've had to, you know, adjust to that. Um, but it's probably been really good for my art because for the first time ever, I'm really – really focused on my own solitary art, which was a struggle in San Francisco because all of my art was collaborative. All of my art was right. social state. And if I wasn't doing stuff, something like that, and I lived with my two best friends in the apartment in the lower hate. Like, well, how much more distraction can you possibly have? You know, it's like, right. give me a break. So I never really worked on, like, painting in my studio because it's never really happened. So, you know, right. I'm older now. I'm here. I think this is great. Clearly, I'm making work that... um I think I might need to be solitary to make a little bit right now. So it's good. But yeah. I it was I I I, <laughs> I totally understand. you know, I um you know, I left San Francisco almost five years ago. And I always say that mm-hmm. I wrote more in the first six months after leaving San Francisco than I wrote in the entire six years that I lived there. Just because I was having such an awesome time in San Francisco living with my three best friends. It was uh, or or my or my or my or my two boyfriends um right. that i uh i was having too much fun to uh, to find time to like work on my art and um oh, but i miss it so much although um you know i don't know if you've been to san francisco recently but it's like it's a, yeah. it's a slightly meaner place than we left it you know like it's i uh, hear it's very different all of our friends who are still there hustle now hard yeah, and, well, good digging their high heels in as deep as they can because, like, what choice do you have? Like, you have to stay in your yeah. apartment. You have to stay at your job. You have to hustle and, and work bust ass because, like, the option of getting a new apartment in San Francisco doesn't exist anymore. It you doesn't exist. Yeah. In San Francisco, what are you talking about? There's no way. So, it's yeah, it's a struggle. And, like, it's a struggle that I wasn't comfortable with anymore, especially considering what I was getting out of that city at that point as a result of all the struggle. You know, it was like, if this was still... I was just going to move to, then I'd maybe be prepared to work a little harder to pay higher rent. But, like, everybody's leaving. Like, the, the culture is shifting. The people that I'm surrounded by all of a sudden are, like, kind of terrible. I don't know. I just, it didn't feel like, I mean, it just didn't feel like the place I moved to. And I didn't like the feeling of being stuck. And I, I, I resent any time I feel stuck. You know, I felt like I could not leave my apartment. I could not leave my job. If any aspect of my life changed, it would all fall apart. And I, I didn't feel like. I, I'm so comfortable with that, you know. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I just, I saw an option here to come somewhere where I had some friends. You know, Christine is a very close friend of mine, and that was a big inspiration in coming here was, you know, Paul's involvement and my involvement in Queer Bomb every year. I, you know, I bought a bunch of the SF girls here year after year for it, and we had a we established a relationship with Austin. Um, and I, of the crew, I was the one that kind of, for a few years, the light was kind of there in my head that I wanted to maybe consider this. So. Here I am. Uh, <laughs> Are you planning to remain in Austin? I am for right now, yeah. Things got weird for a minute there, and everything kind of got crazy, and I settled a lot of my problems, and now kind of I, I gave myself a fresh start and moved into the heart of the city. I'm in an absolutely ideal neighborhood for who I am and what I want right now. Um, in terms of the geography of the city, it couldn't be more ideal in terms of where I am. Stopped, you know, in comparison to the house I was living in where I was, like, insanely far south, and I was, like, practically out of the city when I was in the suburbs, and it was just not me at all. Um, so yeah, I changed some stuff, and I think making those major changes and, and being back in a city where I feel like I have 
a relationship with the city um, where I can walk to coffee shops, where I can get on my bike and walk and drive around the city, um, where I'm not completely relying upon my car just to get to, like, Target for crying out loud. It was it was a nightmare. So <laughs> it just isn't me. I mean, it's for some people. It just, you know, and I, you know, the homes are beautiful, whatever. I had a great house. It was a great experience, um, but it just wasn't me. And so, yeah, I'm living in a really tiny little cool little cottage behind some house with a trailer, and it's, you know, it lives with in behind two folk musicians and, you know, like, oh my God, Labrador. Awesome. Yeah, it's like the, you know, it's like the absolute quintessential Austin, you know, uh, kind of almost cartoony. It's great. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm going to stay here. My mother is actually planning on moving uh, down here, I think, at some point this year. Um, oh, which wow. I'm excited about. Where's she living now? She's in Detroit. Most of my family okay. family is in Detroit. My, my, most of my adopted family is in San Francisco, but most of my immediate. Uh, actual family, blood families in, in Detroit. And yeah, she's um, you know, she's a single mom and only child. We've been we've been apart now for, you know, it's been almost a decade. And I think it's just time. I think we miss each other, and it's just time to be sort of closer. So she's not super bummed to be leaving Detroit, and I understand. You know, I wasn't when I left. Um, she's been there for a long time. So yeah, um, so it's good. Yeah, Austin. Awesome. Austin's a great place. It's a place to make art, I think, and it's a place where. We're super central here, right in the middle of the country, and I can get anywhere in three hours. And um, although since moving here, I haven't started traveling, which has made me a little bit <laughs> um, to be in Texas this long. But, you know, uh, I'm going on a tour for the book, and, you know, I think it's – I'm kind of figuring out that formula of, okay, I'm not involved socially anymore in the nightlife world, and I'm not involved in, you know – that aspect, performing or DJing in, in a performative way, and, and you know, really in our in our world, the only way that you're going to get booked for anything, or the only way that you're going to go on tour, or the only way that you're going to interact with those people in another city working together is through some sort of performative art, and it's just not what I do right now. Um, it's not what I want to do right now. I'm not going to. I don't want to get booked to drag. I don't want to get booked to DJ. It's just not what I want to do. Um, so that being said, you know, Ambrosia was here actually last uh, October. We kind of had a heart-to-heart gal, gal chat, and, you know, I was just trying to figure out a way to make, like, how is a fine artist, how is a drawer, an illustrator, or a painter, do you do that? And this guy, I mean, I, I've done so much work with the drag community and the nightlife community over the, the years since I, you know, legally could practically. Um, how do I tap into that, and how do I figure this out, and this is the way. So now I have this book that's doing really well, and... Yeah, I'm funding my own tour. I'm paying, for my, I'm paying my own way. I'm staying with friends. But because a lot of my friends have remained in that world and are very successful in that world, all I had to do was make a phone call to somebody like Ambrosia or Hecklina and be like, hey, I'd love to do a book release party. This is when I'm going to be there. What should we do? And, you know, Ambrosia came back to me with a couple of great parties that were totally open to featuring artists. So um, awesome. and there are going to be other cities where I'm going to be doing, you know, a, a singular actually like at a bookstore event. So, yeah, I'm going to L.A. for almost a week, and I think it's cool that, like, the formula seems to be, Austin seems to be a great place to make the art, and then I can kind of present it at a more wide-scale, you know, level, and eventually get out of Austin with the art. So, it's really great, and I'm really excited to, like, reconnect with people that I haven't connected with, and to be able to connect in that environment that means so much to me in the nightclub world with people who, that's where their art lives, people like Cindy, people like Eklina, people like Vivian, all these people that I really would love to work with again, it's exciting to do it sort of on my terms and with my own project and to figure out a way to make that work is exciting. Um, so yeah, LA, uh, you know, Printed Matter in New York reached out to me via Etsy and they wanted to feature me at the LA Art Book Fair that they curate every year at the MOCA, so I'll be doing that. Um, 
yeah, I changed my plane ticket for that. He was like, you want to do it? And I was like, oh, I want to do it. Yeah, of course. I thought I would have <laughs> to it. Give me a break, of course. Um, so I'm doing that, and then I'm going to be doing uh, Cafeteria, uh, an Echo Park with Sindri, Ambrosia, and then I'll be doing, uh, what is it, Queen Kong on the 19th. And then I'm awesome. driving to San Francisco, hopefully, with a couple of gals. I'm trying to get it on, actually, to jump in the car in Devon, see other people, do a little road trip uh, up to SF, and I'm doing Mother. Uh, it starts search that night on the 20th, and then I'll be in San Francisco for like a week, just kind of hanging out and revisiting. I had just a couple more questions. Like, the last thing I guess I want to say about the book and want to ask you about is that it is, it is awesome and refreshing to see a piece of queer art that is so um, queer. Like, like this is a faggoty book, and I mm-hmm. love it. There seems to be so much, like, a will to conform now. I hear so much, especially from, like, a slightly older generation, that yep. now that we have our rights, we should, like, be good fags and dykes mm-hmm. and, um, like, mind our P's and Q's and always press our shirts and, like, mm-hmm. get married and have our 3.5 kids. <laughs> how uh, like how is how how does how does your very queer unapologetically sexual book fit into our time and place, Nathan? Oh, I mean, I've received so much amazing commentary and so many amazing responses, and people like pouring their guts up to me. And then I've also like read the comment pages, and it's like unbelievable, cuckoo crazy. Like people are <laughs> insane. And you know what? I you know I was told years ago when I first received this project. Ever, 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 ever comment on comments. It, it doesn't make any sense. It speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. The article's there. Never do it. And I haven't ever done it. And uh, But I do read them. And I, you know, I find it interesting. Um, yeah, there's what you exactly described. There's a ton of, and it's, it's definitely an older crowd, it seems like. Although some super ignorant things were said by younger people, too. Um, you know, yeah, it's like this, it, it, like, I don't even get it. So many layers of how much I hate it. It's just, it's, it's just so weird. Like, there's this, you know, first layer of that is I received all this, you know, negative attention from some people that were saying things like, I'm queer and this doesn't represent me. You know, I've been married for 17 years and then my husband and I have never had a third in my relationship and this is not representative of me. And I, my response to that is like, so what? I don't understand why I asked that. Like, I just don't understand why because it doesn't. It doesn't reflect your personal practices and doesn't represent you specifically and your experiences specifically why it's invalid. And that really bothers me. And I think we've, we've come to a place culturally where, like, that's kind of common. Like, people are just so entitled and people are so, especially with comment boards and the Internet and people being able to hide behind the screen. You know, and then, and then there are other people that totally get it and that jump in and, and defend things and write things like, congratulations on your healthy relationship. Dot, dot, dot. Like, okay, so what? Like, or, you know, then you make a coloring book that represents your white picket fence life and, like, right. move on with your day and feel represented. But, like, you know, and I, I realize, like, representation and, like, ownership of words and things really tricky territory lately. I understand that. And there's a lot of word policing going on. <laughs> but I feel like not everything needs to represent you specifically for it to be part of the dialogue of an umbrella dialogue. So, is the Cosby Show representative of every African American's experience? Of course not, no. but it's part of that dialogue. Like I, I see, two, like two things at work, and I experience it when I put my own shit out. Like I don't read the comments anymore. Like the first time oh. I got called an AIDS vampire was like, okay, I'm done. Like I just don't need to see what people say about me on the internet. Yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> totally. Um, I, I see both this 
impulse to um, dictate to other people how they should be living their lives, which seems to be just like an American-wide phenomenon. And then there is this um, struggle, I feel like, within the LGBTQ communities, alliance, tribal organization, that is like really a struggle, not just for like the heart of what it means to be queer, but whether or not we're going to be queer at all. Like whether queer is going to be a thing moving forward. And uh, I want to get your thoughts on that. Like, is there room for faggots and dykes in the future? Like, do and and trans folk and the bisexual, you know, like, or I go back to San Francisco and I see the bars that we used to go to that used to be filled with radical fairies and unapologetic faggots are now often full of gay dudes and some girls who are totally fine being homosexual, but really don't want to be gay. Right. You know what I mean? Like, they are essentially culturally straight homosexuals. And, like, is that the future? Like, what do you think? I think my bigger fear is instead of there not being queer culture in the future, there's not going to be alternative culture in the future. Um, And that's a broader stroke. And I think that, you know, what is queer? Queer is the alternative gay, you know? It's more interesting. It's more intellectual. It's more thought-provoking. It's harder-edged. Um, and I think that we've lost a lot of it. There used to be a time where people searched for music and searched for things, and they had to go to local record stores, and they had to go to local shows. You know, there was just very tactile, very personal way of going about what kind of culture you brought into your life and what, what appealed to you. And, and I just think it's all so easy now. It's all as simple as like going to a blog and having to tell you what to listen to. So there used to be a time where you could kind of find people that were like-minded via maybe a music scene. And I feel like that time is gone. Terrible people listen to great things now because it's just so accessible. So, you know, and that sounds so snobby and so terrible, but like, no. I'm sorry. But you know what I mean? True alternative culture, I just think it's trickier to make happen because it's just a lot of people wearing the clothes and it just isn't quite the same thing as it used to be. But I think there are always going to be people that are forward-thinking, button-pushing weirdos, whether they're gay or, gay or straight. There's always going to be room for queer culture. God, I hope. If not, like, I'm done. I don't know. I mean... The beauty of queer culture, too, is that it's inclusive. It's not just gay men or gay women. It's straight allies. It's Bowie. It's Grace Jones. That's all queer culture. So there are always good people out there and interesting people making interesting things. I just think it's going to be maybe harder to find that stuff. It's just going to get lost easier. Culture is very scary and confusing to me right now. Beam me up. I'm ready. Uh, (laughs) Oh, don't give up yet, dude. We need you. No, I'm not. I'm Um, not. But like... um, you, you touched on something that I want to dig into a little bit more if you're out of time. Um, mm-hmm, of course. Uh, there was a way in which when we were kids, the capitalism of the 90s gave us access to this unparalleled smorgasbord of avenues to go down mm-hmm. creatively, like sub, subculturally. Absolutely. There were goth kids and emo kids and, like, punk kids and, like... Totally. But there was also a way in which, like, the buying of the physical things that went along with that, the albums, like, each subculture was kind of, like, pinned around a musical style or genre, and there was a fashion that went with that, and there was a way in which the economics kind of limited us to the shit that we were really passionate about. Absolutely. Yeah. So we had to carve out our little, like, our our path and our niche, and we had to, like... You both had to, like, proselytize. You had to, like, preach to your friends about the awesome culture that you found. Absolutely. And you 
you couldn't stray too far afield in just like buying random shit because the next album was going to be 10, 12, 15 of your hard earned after school job dollars. And and now like everything is instantly free on the internet. Mm -hmm. Clothes are so cheap. You can dress however you want for a season and it'll all fall apart. Thanks, H&M. Those boundaries were both like constraining, but provided. uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, Kids today just, like, seem totally on their own, like an infinite island in their own way. Like, they can be and pull from anything they want to, but, like, there's no structure for them. I completely agree with everything you're saying. I'm curious about your journey. You grew up in Detroit. Yeah. Well, no, actually, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, and I oh, was no, in LA. I had no idea. <clears throat> yeah, I'm an L.A. boy. Uh, I was in L.A. from birth to uh, freshman year of high school, and then I moved to Detroit for high school, and I stayed there through college, and then... In the course of college, I moved to Chicago and came back, and New York and came back. And from Detroit, then moved to San Francisco and was there for just shy of eight years, I think. Where were you at when you figured out you were a homo, and how old were you? I was a goth kid, and so, like, queerness kind of just a part of it. Like, you know, eyeliner and nail polish and things that were very on paper queer were very much a part of my aesthetic, even before I was out. So... Coming out was something that didn't really, like, to my friends, I was out pretty early on. I would say freshman year of high school, maybe. But it was never like, I'm gay. It was more just kind of like, I like this boy. It was, it, it was, and with my family and my mom, you know, I think it was more of a, I didn't feel the need to bring it up necessarily until I had somebody I wanted her to meet. And it was just kind of, you know, it wasn't because I didn't feel like she would be accepting at all. That's, that wasn't what it was. I just, or it wasn't even that I, I'm sure that on some level we all went through that moment of not being cool with it, but it wasn't that I was super positive either. It just kind of was just there, you know? Um, yeah. When I broke up with my first boyfriend is when I finally, like, in words, used the word he to my mother. And, uh, you know, it wasn't any shock to her. It was just kind of like, uh-huh, okay, moving forward, it's probably going to be a fastest breakup, you know? <laughs> so, you know, um, I have a lesbian aunt and a gay uncle, um, so it wasn't the hardest thing in the world for okay. me, luckily. And my aunt, I remember when I was a teenager, I left a copy of, I don't know if you ever read the Francesca Leo Block books, but when we were in high school, it became sort of a little craze of quick reads for us. And there was a book called We See That, a book called uh, Baby Bebop. And it was just this like, kind of really fantasy, kind of young adult fiction about, it was really queer and really weird and kind of punky and awesome. And it was like about like, you know, this crazy punk girl who had sex with her gay two gay best friends to have this love child and they all raised this love child together. It's a cool like, series of books. And, uh, oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. But my aunt found a copy of one of them in the car from we had taken a road trip, I think, to Grand Rapids for Christmas or something. I had left it in the car and she took it upon herself to read it. And, you know, then she came to me aside and was like, if you ever want to talk about anything, myself or your Uncle Matt, we're both available to you. And I was like, Oh, and it was just too soon. It wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. And like, I didn't uh, feel like I wanted to be approached about it. And it just, it definitely was a, uh, okay. you know, that was sort of my biggest, like, I'm out kind of moments. Like, they found out the jig is up. But, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't even, you know, it was just kind of like, a, leave me alone. I don't talk about it. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> Got <teenager>. it. <laughs> how did, um, I'm curious how San Francisco impacted your sense of being queer? Cause I'll tell you for myself, like, I grew up in San Diego. And yeah. I was totally one of those kids that was totally fine with sucking dick, but like I don't want to see a drag show or like do right. dress up like girls Absolutely. or anything like like that's crossing the line. Um, yeah. 
And uh, so, you know, moving to San Francisco, like meeting the Herreras and Sindri mm-hmm. and like, like that changed my life. Like, yeah. Literally changed oh, 100%. the person that I, so I'm like, what, um, what impact did San Francisco have on you? I mean, everything. It changed my entire creative path. Um, it changed the person that I am for sure. Um, you know, in Detroit before I left, I was I was throwing and DJing this party called SAS that was you know an alternative underground queer dance party. And it was a blast, and I definitely feel like looking back, our message was great in terms of providing an alternative space for gay people. But I think I definitely at the time had that sense of like being in the Midwest, and there were only really two options: there's either like the shitty gay bars that play share remixes, or there's this. And so there becomes sort of a line drawn in the sand, and I think that you, as a result of growing up, you know, in the places that we've grown up, in the U.S. in general, we all have internal homophobic tendencies about certain things. It's impossible not to on some level. Um, And so, you know, I think that there were probably things about my own presentation of myself that were very based in that. You know, I was definitely like a boy boy who wears a baseball hat and a beard, and nothing's changed. I still am. But, like, that was just sort of I was very, like, rigid about, like, where I fell on the, the gay spectrum. And definitely going to San Francisco, I de- you know, I grew up on Rocky Horror and I loved Hedwig and I, we all, I definitely loved drag and I was a goth kid. So like playing with things that were gendered, ambiguous, was not foreign to me. But I definitely had no intention ever of doing drag and going to drag shows was not something that was super, super fun for me or that was really certainly inspiring on a level beyond, haha, this is cheeky, here's a tip. But I was taken to my first training shack, my first week in town basically, and it was Fleetwood Mac Rumors Night. And I just happened oh to be God. lucky enough. That was my first experience at the stud on a Tuesday night, training shack, and I lost my shit. Like, I had no idea what to make of it. It was just unlike anything I had seen before. I was witnessing what was clearly a group of people who loved each other and worked together regularly and were really into it. And it was, like, rock and roll based. And it was, like, it was creating visual art on stage to music. And I just felt like the possibilities were endless. And I didn't really know how to get involved. I knew I wanted to be involved, and so I started directing, and I started making props for people, and I started doing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, and a lot of visual stuff, um, and then eventually it just kind of became apparent that, like, I needed, you know, it was apparent that I wanted to, to A, be the face of my own work at that point, but also, you know, it's funny, I was going through a really terrible breakup, the one that was really the first you know, big relationship with my life, and it really, that one kind of lingered for a while. That breakup was a really, really hard one, and I felt at the time like I needed to do something that really scared me and challenged me a lot. And I had this network of friends from doing backstage at Training Shack and doing backstage at, you know, at the time TR sensation before it was even something, um, mm-hmm. doing all this stuff with people and being so involved in a behind-the-scenes capacity. I had this amazing network of people now that I really liked and cared about and was working with creatively, and it was the obvious choice was to, like, okay, I want to do something that scares the crap out of me. This is kind of the direction that I need to go in. I guess I'm going to challenge myself and do this thing. And it was also very apparent to me at the time that it scared me for a lot of reasons. I mean, just being on a stage in general was not something I had any experience with. It was comfort level with. And I still really don't. I don't love it. Performing is not my favorite thing. But I, more than anything, knew that I had some hang-ups going on about, you know, my own masculinity and stuff, like we all do sometimes, and I felt like, what a good way to challenge that. Like, there are these things that I that I possess that are very obvious triggers, you know, culturally masculine triggers. Um, t-shirt wearing, jeans wearing, bearded, scruffy guy. Can I, am I cool with stripping myself of all of that and 
transforming 180 degrees and looking completely like something and someone different. And not only do that, but do that and then get up and, like, perform. I mean, it was absolutely horrifying to me, <laughs> everything about it. Um, and, you know, I did it as a backup to start, and then I ended up doing my own numbers, and I felt like the reaction that I was getting from people in my life, from people that I was either maybe dating or sleeping with or casually talking to on an app or something, was very interesting <laughs> and very um, gross sometimes, just like, like the amount of you know homophobia and, and, and misogyny that exists, just the people's reaction to that kind of thing, it's just like, whoa, all the reason to keep doing it. Like, wow, this is a filter. Interesting. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I just, you know, it was challenging to me. It was challenging to people around me. Um, and every time I would, you know, do it and I would catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror, having forgotten that I was wearing, you know, a two-foot-tall wig and looked like a crazy person, um, and I realized that I looked like a crazy person out in public interacting with people that I knew and cared about and my peers. Um, and every time that kind of was jarring to me, that was more incentive to just keep doing it because if it's still scary to you, then it, you should probably keep doing it and there's something else to work out. So it was a complete, you know, so unexpected and so unbelievably helpful and beneficial. And I wear my queerness in a, in a way now that is so much prouder and so much louder and and drag was something that I would, that I'm happy to walk away from right now as well, because I don't really yeah. feel that need right now to do it. I'm not asking myself the same questions anymore. And I, you know, I, I've done Dragon Austin a couple times, and I, I had a realization doing it the first time. So I was in the bathroom getting ready, and I just kept expecting to turn around and see like Elijah Minnelli behind me, or arrive at the club and like say hi to Heckles, or say hi to Vivian, or say hi to Glamour, or whatever. And none of that was present, and I realized very quickly that this was an art form that a large portion of why I loved it so much was based in the people I was doing it with and the collaboration involved. And um, it just isn't a solitary art form for me. I'm not somebody who's inclined to, like, I'm really excited to, like, spend my night alone getting ready alone in my bathroom and becoming a woman. Like, it just is not appealing to me right now. (laughs) It was the dialogue that was exciting to me. It was the process of doing it together. It was the process of being involved in this dialogue together. So... You know, and there are great queens in Austin. I just, again, you know, every once in a while, you know, but then I did it again after that experience because that queen had came out for the drag festival and asked me to do a Susie number with her and asked me to be a backup Susie. And I was like, Hecklina is in town asking me to be a backup Susie for a Susie and the Banshees number. Of course. Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Like, of course. And that was a blast. Do I need to do it again right now? No. But if, like, somebody comes to town that I care a lot about and it's going to be a fun sort of reminiscent experience, then yeah, of course. It's still, I still have a closet full of it. Um, but yeah, it, it changed are, me a lot. Especially since I've left San Francisco. You know, it's funny. Like the six years that I spent on that island, basically, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. I left three times. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, four times. I like beyond like flying down to spend like Christmas with my mom. I probably left three or four times. Oh, you and mean like you left it to get off? I thought you meant like you left to move and came back. Oh shit! You only no, left no, no, three no, or four no. times. No, I just, I just, I, I just like literally left San Francisco three or four times in six years. Wow. Right? Other than to like, like just for me to just to do shit, you know. Um, and and since I've left, I have been all over the world. There are yeah. amazing drag queens all over the world. Oh, like cool. in every city I've ever been to, there's I've seen amazing drag queens, but I've never seen the density of talent and passion, like like drag is a high art in San Francisco. Like people uh-huh. take it seriously, but not in such a way that it is impenetrable or off putting. Like I've never seen a 
you know, like Sindri once told me that like she never set out to be a drag queen. Like right. she was a performance artist. Like yep. drag was the like the shortest route to getting on stage. Absolutely. And but then once she was on that stage, she found that like she was among amazing performance artists. Like it was like a bunch of queens doing what she was doing. <laughs> I don't think any a lot of the drag queens that I know and love. I don't think started out wanting to do that. I know I certainly did not. Um, Eli, I don't think ever did. Micah, Vivian Forevermore, I know has said to me, and I don't want to quote my kind of anything, but like he's told me that he considers himself an artist who's using drag as a medium more than he considers himself a drag queen. And I, I relate to those people in that way. And, you know, I, I definitely, there's a, there's a, there's a disconnect with some drag for me, for sure. And I think a lot of drag queens have different reasons for doing drag. Everybody's got different reasons. But the queens that I responded to the most, most of us are doing it for kind of different reasons than like, I really just, love doing this or I love getting up on a stage or right. I love being glamorous or, you know, there was definitely there was something else going on with it. Whether it was, you know, it was, it was an art project for a lot of us. It was just the medium we were working in because the medium we were working in happened to be what was exciting in the city and happened to be what was thought-provoking and intellectual and that's what was happening. It was, it was underground. It was cool. It was fun. It was edgy. Um, you know, and yeah, as a result, there were a lot of amazing people you know, we really, honestly, we caught the death rattle of that of that whole scene. I mean, we were lucky enough to experience it on some level. We created our own little renaissance, for sure, with people like, right. you know, our immediate family that we all know, that we both know and, and love. But I think right. that, you know, that was the end of it. <laughs> like, it certainly there was. It is not what it was. And it, I don't think it was, when we were there, what it was before we were there. I know that it was not. And I know that the 90s were, you know, in terms of creative expression, were were off the charts in that city. Um, so, yeah. you know. Leo Herrera calls our class, you know, like our, our era of San Francisco, the Indian summer of love. Uh-huh, absolutely. I like uh, that. That's, was, that's very appropriate. I, I was drunk when he said that, and I almost fell off my bar stool. It was so profound. Um, yeah, it's perfect. Uh, but, um, hey, uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff that you have going on today. I'll let you go. Um, just one <laughs> final question for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, cause I could talk about this shit for oh, me too. But, um, um, uh, do you have any advice or words of wisdom for young queers coming up after us? Like, either like for people who looking at this book or looking at your body of art and are inspired by it, do you have any words for those kids? Yeah, I think for, for young kids these days, young queers, my, my advice really is just, do your research. Like, just please do your research. I, I just think it's so important to be aware of what came before you and be aware of history and what paved the way for you to be here today. Um, it didn't start with Kesha and Gaga, and I think it's really important to know that. It's so easy now with the Internet. Like, you kids have the Internet. Do it. Google search it. Like, figure it out. I, I just, it's not as hard as it was for us, and we learned it. So, you know, be inspired. Get inspired by things. There's so much to be inspired by, and I just feel like, Shutting up a little bit and and listening before speaking up is really important. And I've I've really done that in every city I've, I've moved to. I've taken that moment. I did it in San Francisco. I didn't get involved right away. I took my moment of like figuring out what was going on there first, surveying the land and getting a sense of of who was doing what and what the scene was and what was happening. And then if I felt like there was something for me to say at some point and mix it into the to the dialogue, then I would. But I didn't come out swinging. And I think it's really important that you have to have humility and you have to have respect for 
your elders and your peers and the people that are doing things and the people that have done things and the people that aren't here anymore. And, uh, you know, and a lot of that is getting lost, I think, you know, which is ironic because there's there's more information available than ever. But for some reason, people aren't taking it in or just aren't aware of it. So I think, yeah, just be aware, be, be humble, be aware, do your research, get inspired, make art. Be magical. I don't know. I think that's it, it's tough for for young people right now. We aren't marginalized in the same way that we were when we were kids. So it's and I, and I, that's this is a whole other conversation. I, I'm not even going to get going down this topic. But you know, part of what made us the magical unicorns that we were was that we were kind of we were outsiders. We were pushed around. We were marginalized, and as a result, we kind of created our own families and magic out of that. And it's tougher to sort of find that magic these days. I, I've taken I've taken asking that question at the end of every interview. And I think so far that was my favorite answer. That was both so spot on and so like the radical gay equivalent of you kids get off my lawn. <laughs> yes. Nathan, yeah, thank, thank you, you so I much mean, for taking the time to talk to me. I really of course. A great conversation. I really appreciate it. Definitely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, kid. I will oh, talk to you soon. Well. Uh, Definitely. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you much. Bye. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nathan Porth. You can find his book, Last Night I Dreamt That Somebody Loved Me, at his Etsy store under the handle Nathan Report Art. And if you like the program, consider rating us or writing a review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> Tune in next week when we'll be joined by the one and only Big Dipper. Thank you and good night.